For anyone that is new to the show, my name is Matt Sapala and I am your host. I'm a personal trainer and currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. This platform is a judgment-free, holistic health space, which will hopefully inspire you guys to take steps to become more healthy, happy, and conscious humans. Without further ado, I bring you this week's special guest, former AFL footballer, Jake Edwards. Jake is one of the most inspiring individuals I've ever come across in my life. He is the founder of Outside the Locker Room, which is a non-for-profit charity changing the way we approach mental health. Jake himself experienced some extremely dark days during his AFL career, which took him to breaking point, and we talk at length about this during today's episode. This episode gives me goosebumps each and every time I listen to it. Jake, as you said to me, mate, a big driver for doing the things you do is legacy and wanting to leave the world a better place. Well, my friend, you're doing exactly that. Your story has touched me amongst many others in the community. Keep up the incredible work and thank you for being so raw and vulnerable during today's chat. Just a little final note from me, guys, before I wrap this intro up. I thought it would be important to share with you that Jake and I recorded this podcast in the midst of our stage four lockdown in Melbourne last year in 2020. And and I've been banking on this podcast ever since after constant communication with Jake trying to find the perfect time to release the episode for Maximal Impact and after speaking with Jake we decided that this year would be a perfect time to release the episode just with the financial support that the government has been giving us through the JobKeeper and JobSeeker program to help keep businesses afloat is coming to an end at the end of next month so This is a really crucial time to really make an impact for people and let them know that there are support networks out there not taking away from the challenges that last year possessed. It was a a crazy year and no doubt one of the hardest years that we'll ever face in our lives. A final note from me, guys, if there's anyone that resonates with anything that Jake and I discussed during the episode, please don't hesitate to reach out for support. It's extremely brave to stand up and shed light on some dark times that you may be experiencing. The links to all the relevant support networks are in the show notes. That's all from me, friends. I'll see you on the other side. Jake Edwards, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast, mate. Oh, thanks for having me, mate. It's a privilege to be on. Awesome to have you on the show. I've been following your journey for quite some time now and you're spreading such an important message. And I think there's no better time than with what's going on in Melbourne right now to spread this message. So I appreciate you making the time to come on. Sure is, Matthew. And what I make to your podcast. I mean, these contributions, getting the word out there with podcasting these days, it's a fantastic vehicle. So what I make. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. Podcasting is the only platform where you can actually do two things at one time. You know, like if you're trying to, you learn off um, off YouTube or something like that, it's really, really hard to concentrate on the video and multitask at the same time. But I think podcasting is a really good platform and allows you to do that. You see people put in their headphones and go for a run and, and listen to a podcast and they're educating themselves in that department as well. So I think we're really, really lucky. Yeah, we are. No, no, no doubt. It's accessible anywhere. Um, and the good thing now that 
yeah, I think it's one of the fastest growing industries in terms of tech uh, podcasting. And the more we use these platforms to talk about this stuff, the better. Definitely, mate. For my overseas listeners, we are in stage four lockdown in Melbourne at the moment, which is basically you can leave your house for, for one hour a day. There's some pretty harsh restrictions at the moment, but really trying to nip the COVID situation in the bud. But how are you going, Jake? Yeah, I'm going okay. It's, uh, yeah, when it all first hit, you know, four months ago, it was a priority just to ensure that our workforce, being our staff and that, could ensure the security for their job. So that was uh, that was really a uh, good achievement for us to do, uh, which we've been held on to, mate, you know, ever since. And now it's just the biggest change is just working from home. I think myself, as I mentioned off the top, uh, talking to you before we started going live, is it's I don't really enjoy it. Uh, working from home is a bit of a distraction for me. So I've had to recall on my discipline mate to make sure that i'm working <clears throat> when i'm working and not get sidetracked by other things but i mean being fortunate enough to keep working which is you know helps that structure and routine and unfortunately a lot of people as you know here in victoria uh, haven't had that luxury and as part of what we do in mental health there's certainly been a, a roughly around 29 percent increase uh on our program for people reaching out for support so it's been a, a challenging time for everyone but we've been able to um to stay focused with some work yeah, definitely. And I think the silver lining out of that situation is that there are support networks out there and people are utilizing them, which is a real, real positive on my end. Yeah, definitely. Definitely right. And uh, look, we're not going to know the real impact of COVID probably for another probably eight to 12 months at this point in time, but we are expecting those numbers to increase uh, both mental health people reaching out. I think 23% more people now are presenting with mental health challenges over the last four months. Um, so predominantly them in youth and we know that suicide, we expect suicide unfortunately to increase by roughly around about 1500 people a year over the next couple of years so we're we're certainly acknowledging that's a difficult time for many and we're doing everything we can to support those in need yeah scary times mate but i commend you and take my hat off to everything that you you guys are doing um and within the mental health space and i know we're going to get into that later on in the podcast but before we get into that, Jake, paint a picture for my listeners at home. What was your life like growing up? Yeah, growing up, I grew up in country Victoria. It was certainly, uh, I, I, had a, I had a podcast the other day and I was just talking about, I guess for me as a young man growing up, I had a very typical, uh, I guess, childhood. I wasn't really out of line in any stretch of the manner. I, I, school was fine for me. I wasn't a, I wasn't a, a I'm a, a muck around child or anything like that. I'm the youngest of three sons. So I've got, I got two older brothers uh, and that keeps you in line pretty quickly, believe me, when you grow up in a, in a farm environment. So uh, I grew up in a place called Exford, which is between Bacchus Marsh and, and Geelong for people listening who know Victoria well. Uh, and my old man uh, was very much my biggest influence in my life growing up. And my mum was always, uh, you know, that support person for the family my old man was very much a provider uh that that typical kind of male ego um you know in influence i guess you'd call um and football for me mate was a big part of my life and i was um eventually i became the fifth player in my family to play afl football but i remember growing up um you know my earliest memories of, of footy in fact because my father actually played at collingwood richmond and the bulldogs um, earliest memories is actually being out in the paddock with him and, you know, practicing kicking, goal kicking, you know, him giving me tips and stuff like that from the age of kind of 12 up. So, uh, yeah, growing up on a farm was, it was a lot of fun as well. We, me and my brothers were always out doing things. 
Uh, we were never inside, that's for sure. We were on the motorbikes or building cubby houses in every corner of the farm and we had a lot of fun, yeah, growing up. It was certainly something I hope to one day um, give the opportunity to my kids um, eventually when I, when I have them. So typical childhood, mate, nothing really out of, uh, out of the ordinary. As I mentioned, mum yeah, and dad, right. great role models still together. Uh, two older brothers, awesome people, so... No, I really love that, Jake. And I just want to know, how did the influence of having two older brothers play in your childhood? Was there lots of like little scruffles in the, in the paddock? How did that influence your dream to play AFL as well? Yeah, it certainly has rubbed off on me even till today. I'm, very, I'm a very competitive person. Um, uh, I can remember ever since I was, so the, the gap between me and my middle brother, it's nearly five years. So when I was 13, he was 18, my older brother yeah, it was a couple of years older than that. So they were always not, they weren't home. They were out driving and hanging out with girlfriends and friends and stuff. And it was always a lot of time. It was just me and my mum uh, at home. So hence why I've got a very, very close relationship with my mother. Uh, but growing up, we were super competitive, me and my brothers. Like we would play cricket on the tennis court. We'd take the net down and they'd just bowl me bounces the whole time. And you get used to really defending and playing the hook shot a lot of the time. But we'd always try and outdo each other. Uh, we'd, um, and being the youngest, I was constantly trying uh, to seek their validation. I was constantly trying to beat them. Um, and that's something that I think now, it's just in everything in my life that I do, Matty, I just, you know, I have to try and be, if not the best, trying to be working hard at it. So that was a huge influence of me and my brothers. We, we typical, you know, siblings growing up, we would argue and fight. But we, we got along really, really well. And I'm very proud to say that me and my two older brothers, we're, we're extremely close today. Um, and ever since the age of, say, 17, we've actually never, ever had an argument. Uh, so we've never, you know, had a disagreement where we've actually, you know, not spoken to each other for a period of time. It's actually quite unique, uh, the relationship my brothers and I have. So fortunate enough to have them. Um, but at the age of 13, they were hardly ever home. So I spent a lot of time with my mum. Um, you know, because she'd pick me up from school, bring me home, take me to footy training, which was three, four nights a week. So I spent a lot of time with my mum, which probably built a lot of my um, emotional kind of awareness uh, from a young from a young man, having spent a lot of time with my with my mum, because my dad was a, a plumber. He still is a plumber, um, and my two older brothers actually ended up taking over that family business. So they were very much that masculine uh, influences and in, in our family, and took over that kind of tradey. Uh, appearance, I guess that that I was never going to be a tradie, that's for sure. So, um, so but football again, I, I'd seen my two older brothers uh, get the opportunity to try and play AFL football, so professional football, and they weren't successful in doing that. And what that was for me was a great example of kind of what to do and what not to do. So, my middle brother, he was by far the most talented, but he he probably didn't work as hard as probably what he could have. And I remember looking at when I was about 15, just going, look, just don't do that. Just work, work as hard as you possibly can. Because I wasn't probably the most gifted in terms of talent. But one thing I was relentless on was my one work ethic. So um, that's probably what got me drafted in the end. So my brothers and I have always had a great relationship growing up. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect, Jake, having someone to aspire to. I know my older brother's very, very similar in that retrospect, always trying to seek his validation, I guess. You know, it's almost like you're living a second life. You have someone to fall on and you notice their mistakes, you notice their successes, and you can adapt them to obviously your own lifestyle. Yeah, and that's it. I think just being having seen that in front of me at home, 
um, from a young age. It was something that I kind of took on, you know, very early on. And that was just, you know, the, both all, all three of us had a dream ambition at one point to play AFL football. And uh, even though they were great footballers at it, there was something that was missing. And I guess I just made the link between, you know, maybe I need, just need to work a lot harder and, I probably felt a lot more pressure too, um, being the youngest, or I guess the last chance in my family, uh, given my father's opportunity for any of his sons to play footy, I probably felt an extra drive and an extra push to really um, make sure that I, you know, that I played AFL football um, because there's probably 15 to 17 um, before I was that kind of age bracket before I was drafted. I spent a lot of time just trying to impress my father, uh, trying to make sure that you know, that I was acknowledged as a potential uh, recruit. And, yeah, man, I was fortunate enough to get that opportunity, which um, which was really good. Love it, mate. And I guess the work ethic and your drive is very, very evident through everything that you're doing today in the mental health space. But before we get into that, Jake, talk to us a little bit about when that dream to play AFL football became a reality and paint the picture for the listeners at home. Yeah, as I said before, football was a big part of my family growing up and um, I always say that if I was to get blood tomorrow, there'd be little footies floating around. It's It's been a part of my DNA for a very long time. My my great-grandfather played well over 100 games. My grandfather played over 100 games, including premierships. My father played over 100 games. My cousin played nearly 250 games. So it was a big part for me uh, and it was a, a path that I wanted to take and I was fortunate enough in 2005 uh, about four weeks out of year 12. Uh, as you know, anyone listening, you mentioned before, around the world, I'm assuming there'd be American people listening to this perhaps. Um, the draft is no different, very similar to the NBA or the NFL over there. Uh, we have the AFL draft here. And, uh, yeah, I was recruited as a 17-year-old. So it was a bottom age pick, which I, they don't do this anymore uh, in the AFL system. But uh, 2005, I was drafted in uh, number 36 in that draft, um, which was a very proud moment, as you can imagine. I, I got asked a question about two weeks ago, actually, and got asked, you know, Jake, what's the happiest moment in your life? And just randomly, I think the best answers are the ones that just pop up in your head uh, rather than thinking about them too much. And the one thing that came into my head when I was asked that, actually, I was asked that by a psychologist, um, the moment that came into my head was when I, was, when I found that I was drafted, um, when I come back to the house, my father was there and I remember just seeing this guy's face, you know, and how happy he was and just how proud and that he was. And then for me, that was a real pivotal moment and happiness in, in my life. And, um, and yeah, so I got drafted to a club called the Carlton Football Club and that was in 2005, which is 15 years ago now, which seems absolutely crazy. But uh, yeah, man, I was very fortunate. I, look, I realized straight away uh, being drafted is one thing, but you know, actually becoming an AFL player and consistent one, it's a different, it's a different ball game. And, uh, and yeah, so my introduction to AFL footy was, was quite, quite brief and quite quick and something I was really, really enjoyed. Yeah, definitely, man. And I guess stepping into that environment, into that elite athletic environment as a 17 year old is a whirlwind. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, those things going through your head at that time. Uh, yeah, it was all because I was still so young. I was probably still very naive to the fact that I'd just been drafted as an AFL player. I kind of hear a lot of things. Like I was fortunate really to have my family that have been through. Um, so I had got a lot of advice and I was kept very grounded, you know, and um, I had those people around me, which really, really helped. My cousin was playing at Collingwood at the time. Um, so I actually lived with him for a couple of months in that first kind of pre-season period. And he was great because he really... 
he taught me a lot about preparation and you know diet and things like that, which was which was really awesome as a bit of an entry into football. Um, but the biggest thing I guess that came with it uh, was that it's exciting, it's fun, it's you know you're living your dream, and I'm walking around the club rooms with blokes that I've grown up watching and idolising for the last three four years of my you know my football career as a junior. And now you're playing alongside them and you're kicking the footy to them at training, like Favola's leading out of the square and you're you know, kicking to him. And I'm fortunate enough to play next to guys like Anthony Kudafides and Chris Judd and um, all these great players and good people. And you really pinch yourself uh, at the time, but it's not till after your career that you reflect on it and acknowledge that, geez, that was pretty special. So the biggest thing probably that I take away from those early years was um, there was a bit of a charade around um, myself being the fifth player in my family. So the media really kind of took a hold of it and really probably blew it out of proportion a little bit. And uh, I kind of felt that pressure again to, um, you know, the family name came into it again. And as great as my, you know, my um, pedigree in footy is, I kind of really wanted to kind of make my own name for myself. And I really pushed against it quite a lot in my early, especially my early six months playing AFL footy and try to, create my own identity mate but um it's pretty hard to run away from when it's so so prominent in the AFL space but look it was exciting I loved it um and yeah I'm very very grateful for the the opportunity that I got yeah amazing Jake and you mentioned the pressures in that environment were the pressures coming internally from you to try and you know live up to those sorts of legacies and create your own legacy at the same time and what sort of support networks were inside those four worlds of the footy club well, I can answer the, the second question pretty quickly. There was nothing. Um, in terms of support, we had a guy, named, a, guy, a guy by the name of Rod Ashman, who is a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was a, he's a former Carlton legend, and he played as like a welfare support person for the club, but he certainly wasn't trained. I think he was a school teacher by trade, but um, he had that connection with the playing group just as a, someone there to have a chat to. But in terms of support, we had – him there but there was no discussion or conversation around you know things such as mental health for example um and i remember my um my first couple of years again was a, a very a challenging one because as you mentioned the expectation uh, was probably more so from myself um trying to live up to those expectations so of my family being number one uh and two i guess the expectation of your members and your teammates and the AFL industry to try and play um, league footy or at least try and replicate what your family have done before you. So I had this real, um, I guess, realistic at the time um, goal of playing a hundred games of AFL footy. That was my target. That was my goal. If I got to that, then I knew that I'd made it successful because all my family members before me had done it. So I had this real uh, inner drive again. And to answer your first question was around, you know, was it me putting that on me? Then I'd, I'd probably say, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, I had family around me who were always encouraging, um, who always supported me, but it was certainly within myself to really try and make them feel proud uh, and try and play AFL football. It's scary to think now that back in, you know, only 15 years ago, I know mental health awareness and the conversation around mental health is still new and it's gaining traction, but it's scary to think that there still wasn't, you know, a plethora of resources at the elite level for those sorts of things. No, nothing at all, mate. And that's as blunt as it is, really. Um, You speak to anyone around my 
generation or even bef- and specifically beforehand, um, we knew it existed. So we knew blokes, looking back now, we, we knew guys were going through tough times off the field. Uh, you could see what we know now around identifying depression as example or anxiety. Like I can look back now and I can finger point three or four blokes and go, geez, you know, maybe they were doing it tough. Um, we knew it was going on, but we, we didn't associate it with a title. So, and again, back then it was more about, you know, just harden up, get on with it, stop being soft, stop being a sook, mate. You know what? You shouldn't be feeling this way. This, this isn't you. And you kind of just roll on with it and you just have the expectation that this is just what it's like to play for footy. You've just got to get used to it. You've got to harden up. Um, and the conversation around, for example, I'd never heard depression, the word uh, as depression used in a diagnostic form until I was actually diagnosed with mental, uh, mental health being depression, anxiety. Um, yeah. At the end of my uh, third year playing AFL football. So right up to that point, the only things I heard, you know, throwaway lines of things such as, you know, what have you got to be depressed about and stuff like that. So I knew it was kind of sadness or loneliness, but I didn't really associate it with a diagnostic thing such as a mental illness. So the conversations, mate, were, yeah, few and far between, if not at all, um, around, you know, uh, depression or mental health, which is disappointing, but it is exciting to see that we have come such a long way in such a short period of time that today, obviously, it's, it's very different. And unfortunately, or say unfortunately, but probably fortunately, is how you got to look at it. Fortunately, blokes like myself and I could name another 10 or 15 uh, ex-players that had to probably go through what we had to go through uh, and come out publicly and talk about it in order for the AFLPA to actually do something more, um, which we think that has played a really pivotal role in creating better programs for players uh, today. Yeah, definitely, Jake. And I guess pairing the the mentality of like your soft heart and up, you know, just get along with it in a high environment filled with a lot of masculinity. It's quite difficult to narrow in on those symptoms and, and you often put them on the back burner every single time. Yeah, and the other thing attached to that, it's a stigma around talking about it and opening up and being seen or perceived to be soft or weak by your teammates. Because I think for me, my inner voices in my head, it was something I could, I could tend to deal with. Most men, you know, we talk to ourselves around the way we feel and this is what holds us back. It's generally the fear and the unknown or the judgment of what people are going to think. And that's why we don't reach out. So you kind of, especially 15 years or, you know, 12 years ago I was diagnosed, you, you just you just deal with it, uh, which we know is the wrong thing to do. You should always talk and reach out and get help sooner before it gets to a critical point because it will. Um, there's no way around it. So for me back then looking at it now, um, I know that there were signs and symptoms that I was going through. But again, I just I was petrified that my teammates would actually think that I wasn't good enough to play AFL footy because I had this mental problem. Um, so it was easier for me as a young bloke who grew up on a farm who had this stigma again attached to him as a tough kind of country kid to just put up with it and deal with it. And I used to say, tell myself stories, Matty, just, you know, I'll get better. I'll get over it. I'm just growing up. This is part of footy. Surely Chris Judd goes through this stuff. Um, and those are the stories that I used to tell myself that were just the bullshit excuses, mate, that, that got me through. Um, but only for a, a period of time until I had a breakdown at the end of my third year. And I was playing AFL footy. So I was out there um, running at the MCG in front of 80,000 people playing football. Um, but behind the scenes, mate, I was going through it really tough. You know, like just getting out of bed was hard. 
I was having these manic anxiety attacks before I'd rock up to training most mornings. Uh, I'd be in tears, um, isolation. I felt like I needed to get away from the group because I was scared that they might see that I was struggling. So I really kind of, um, you know, that, that period in my life just got worse and worse over that third year. And the frustrating thing was is I knew people on the outside were looking at my life thinking how perfect it is. Like, you know, I was on good money. I was playing football, living my dream, a good family. We had you know, good resources as a, as a club. You know, I didn't have any excuse to kind of point fingers at anyone or anything like that. So that was a frustrating and, and just added to the further anxiety around why am I feeling this way? Why am I not happy? Why am I crying? Highlighting on what you just said before, that mental illness doesn't discriminate. You know, you were saying before that you were running out in the MCG in front of 90,000 people. You had, you were on a good wage, like you had the glory, you had the fame, but it just doesn't discriminate. And I guess that's something that everyone can fight their own battles, regardless of their physical circumstances. And I think that's an important thing that, you know, wasn't really publicized back in those days. I say those yeah, days you, like it was, you know, yeah. about 1980s. It was only 15 years ago. <laughs> I feel old, mate. Yeah. Um, no, you, you're right. I think it's, I think where, where we kind of turned the page quite prominently was probably when Buddy Franklin went, uh, when he went through his battles and he went up to Sydney and it was kind of highlighted and he spoke more about his challenge. And I think people looked at Buddy and there were stupid people and ignorant, uneducated people in the community We'll always have the stupid opinion around, you know, oh, yeah, what's he got to be sucking about or, you know, he's bloody this and that. But I think majority of the community kind of went, oh, geez, you know, if, if he can get it, then, you know, this is actually something that affects anyone and everyone. So the narrative off the back of that was, yeah, you, you're right. Like, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't look at people like a Buddy Franklin and go, uh, oh, no, nah, he's rich. He's fine. He's athletic. He's healthy. We'll just skip him and just go down the road to someone that's fortunate. So, it doesn't work like that. And I think the more education we're getting around it, the better. And we see now there's more AFL players than there has ever been before uh, annually, mate, coming out and talking about their challenges, not just footy, but just um, professional athletes in general. Now, Jake, before we take this conversation any further, I'd love to get your definition of mental illness, in particular, anxiety and depression. Well, mate, there's a few ways to answer this. It's a good question to ask because one of my good friends is a psychiatrist. He heads up the mental health ward in the Alfred um, in Victoria. And him and I were talking about this the other day. And there's one way you look, there's a clinical element of it. So we know it's the, you know, the, um, the chemical imbalance and, and how that operates in, in your brain and the, the different ways that that can go through, causing people to fall into slumps. Uh, therefore, we need clinical support, which might be supported by medication to help that balancing effect um, take place. But there's also a really kind of uh, an area that I think we're getting more involved in now, which is that wellness kind of lifestyle area. Uh, when I talk about what is mental health and what is anxiety, I kind of attach it to being mentally fit. Um, I think most of us associate to physical health being getting to the gym getting a routine, getting a structure, eating well, you're going to see some really positive benefits. I think the narrative needs to be changed around that kind of mental fit where you can actually put time into your mindset, work on your, on your mind health. And that includes areas which does include fitness. So for me, it's around like fitness, sleep, hyd- uh, hydration, uh, and, and food. Uh, so make, taking some responsibility. So that for me, what is mental health is actually looking at it from a, an overall wellness point of view as people 
we can take some responsibility on our own lives. And those are four simple things that any person anywhere can actually implement uh, at any point to make a huge dramatic change, a positive change in their, in their mental health. Personally, when it comes to anxiety, what, what I do know um, and everything that I've read, us as humans and our brains do a, a really fantastic way on, and this is through personal experience as well, uh, we tend to create stories in our minds that a lot of the time it's not true. And our brains are very powerful, powerful things. And when it comes to managing anxiety, it's really been able to identify when, those, when that is actually happening in your brain, in your mind, and taking the time to actually interrupt that process, sit down, take a breath. And so this is where breathing techniques, for example, come into really good regulation play. And then actually processing what, what is going on to manage your anxiety before it gets to a crippling point. And for me, the stories I was saying to myself is that, again, I'm, I don't think I can do this. I'm not sure whether football is for me. I'm letting people down, which the reality is that that's not the case. Um, so I was building this manic thought process, which was creating my heart rate to increase so quick, so rapidly that it would actually start causing friction in my muscles to the point where uh, I couldn't hold the steering wheel in my car anymore. So really mental health is about that personal for me, but for me, that personal responsibility around your, your lifestyle. So there's four key areas and anxiety is something I think everyone everywhere experiences at some point in their lives. Some of us just haven't yet learned the tools on how to manage it earlier before it gets to that critical anxiety uh, moment where it can become quite uh, debilitating. So there's that part of it, mate, but as again, it, there's the clinical element too, which again, I could go into detail with, but it's such a complex issue um, to discuss. But we do know that with good uh, sleep, nutrition, movement, um, and hydration especially, that it is having just as good, if not as good effect as routine medication, um, yeah, depending on where you're at in terms of the support you might need. So it's a wide, it's a big question to answer, uh, but that, that's kind of how I um, support people in education around mental health and anxiety. And unfortunately, people, when you think mental health, straight away we think dramatic, uh, we think critical, um, which you know, plays in the, in the role of diagnosis of a mental illness. So that's where there's depression, anxiety, stress, bipolar. And people don't understand, mate, there's many different forms of mental health illnesses. It's not just, you don't just have, for example, you know, depression. There's, there's many different forms of that in itself, but there's also offcuts of that, such as bipolar and personality disorder. And it's a real complex thing, but the best encouragement we can give to anyone everywhere, again, is to, is to get in and, and see clinical support and sit down with a psychiatrist in my opinion uh, and be properly diagnosed um, with a, with a mental health illness if that's if that's what it is that you're going through yeah definitely jake and i think the the most important thing to highlight is that everyone experiences these sort of patterns differently and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach you can experience these depression you know symptoms anxiety symptoms bipolar symptoms differently within your lifestyle and i think it's a really important time if you don't mind jake going through some of the challenges that you faced each day while you're batting, battling those sort of mental illnesses yeah, I'll touch on it a little bit uh, earlier, but in specific detail, um, I was really clashing a lot with the identity crisis of playing footy. Uh, and then also behind the scenes, I was going through symptomatic issues such as getting out of bed. I know it sounds really, really innocuous, but 
um, for me, in my mind, I should be bouncing out of bed, right? I'm playing my dream. Uh, I should be running off the training, all happy. Maybe I built this unrealistic uh, expectation of what it should be like, but at the time I, I wasn't achieving that and that became really frustrating. Um, so therefore I got really angry. And as a lot of young men, what we do rather than communicating through what we're feeling, we actually communicate through behavior like frustration and anger. So I was going through a lot of that, which as I touched on around that, that brain talk and that anxiety build, uh, by the time I left home to go to training, that's when this manic thinking would happen. So I'd start questioning my myself. I'd start questioning my ability, um, my health, um, my, my mindset. And then, you know, it just started creating these huge manic anxiety outbreaks where I'd be on the side of the road because I'd pull over. I couldn't hold the steering wheel in my car because I'd have these anxiety attacks where I'd felt like someone uh, would have a baseball bat and was smacking me in the middle of my back because uh, the muscles would muscles would freeze. It's kind of really hard to describe but to your listeners, but the best way I describe is like um, my hands wouldn't close. I have like T-Rex arms. Um, if you can imagine like a little, like how they, they, they kind of cr- curl up, uh, that's kind of how I describe it. And uh, it was really, really, really bad. And I'd get off the training and then I'd be coming in and out of, crying and i'd get off the train then all of a sudden i go you know take a deep breath right mate come on get on with it stop being a sook um i'd make a mass motion with my hands put it over my face and it just gave you some kind of courage to mate just get in this footy club just get training out of the way you know and then just get back home uh because at the back end of my third year it just got really really bad so i really stopped hanging around uh, my teammates, uh, as much as I, I was the first couple of years, and because I was, I was petrified that they might see that I was doing it tough. I mean, you know, I was crying in the car most mornings. You can imagine if uh, any of them had seen that. So that really, really scared me. And the other thing I was doing, um, which was part of the football culture, which still is a lot anyway, but not as bad as what it used to be, especially at Carlton, because we never really won too many games back then. Um, we actually, uh, alcohol, so going out and partying, um, was something we did pretty well off the field. Uh, and that just that just became more and more prominent, uh, which ultimately started impacting my, my preparation, uh, impacting my performance. And that all just really snowballed into that negativity around my mindset and my mental health. So there was a few things there symptomatically. And then I had a bad game of footy one day, uh, which is irrelevant because I've had plenty of them. And it was just a trigger. So we talk about triggers in life, such as a relationship breakdown or financial stress. A lot of people are experiencing that now in COVID and a lot of people haven't, haven't experienced it at this level. Um, so it's triggering families, issues and uh, personal mental illness. So for me, um, that was that was my my trigger. And that's when it all just, all just come to a head. And because I hadn't spoken about it to anyone and no one knew what was going on. Um, it was a huge shock and surprise to the football club, my family. Um, but it wasn't until I sat down after that footy game, I actually drove straight from Preston Oval because I played in the VFL that day. I drove straight from there all the way back home to the farm. I called the footy club on the way home and said that I quit. I'm finished. I can't do it anymore. And uh, I sat around the dinner table at home with my mum and dad and Rod Ashman actually rocked up uh, from the footy club. So, yeah, mate, that was the first time I spoke to my, my family about what was going on because I, I had to. I was in a, I was in a corner. Um, I just quit footy 
Uh, I had to give him some reason as to why. And I started talking about what I was going through. And my father was obviously, you know, a huge figure in my life, as we've spoken about earlier growing up, but I was still intimidated to talk about it in front of him. I thought he'd actually handle it uh, quite abruptly. I thought he'd, you know, tell me again to stop being a sook and grow up. Um, But he actually handled it very differently. very compassionate and understanding. Um, and it wasn't until I, I allowed my family the opportunity to support me uh, that they showed me that that story again, that I was telling myself actually wasn't true, um, that my family wanted to help. And off the back of that, went back to the football clubs. I had one more year to go on my contract and I agreed to see it out. And that's when I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Crazy, mate. Crazy how, you know, these heightened sense of emotions, um, come out in sort of some physical aspect that may not be so bad to the everyday person, but that's just what was happening in your life at the time. Now, Jake, I'm curious of what changed for you. You know, you mentioned that you had such a really close bond with your family growing up. Why didn't you feel like you could contact them sooner? And why, you know, why did it take some, um, take a big sort of big moment? Yeah, it's a, a great question, mate. And again, in hindsight, I'm 32 years of age now. And one of the reasons it gives me, uh, the accreditation, I guess, to talk about my experience to young people is I don't want anyone to do what I did. Uh, so it's basically a lot of my times is don't do not do Jake um, and don't not talk about it um, because I look back now and that is one of the biggest questions that I battle with so often even till today. And when I have my moments today, because I do, um, I always reflect on what I didn't do then in order to do the right thing now, which has carried me forward in a lot of ways. But to answer your questions directly, it's because of the shame. Um, I, I didn't. I felt like if I had a, if I told my mum and dad, especially my father, I felt like I'd let them down um, because my fear was is that my attachment to my mental health was so critical to me playing AFL football that that far out overweighed my personal health interest to get help. Um, so therefore, I didn't want to talk about it. That's because I was scared of losing footy because the narrative growing up, when we hear about toughness and we hear about, you know, um, courage and things like that, in a, in a football sense, that's backing back into a pack. That's, you know, um, being tough on the footy field and being hard to play on and being hard to, um, you know, to just being a really tough player. That's how I associated my mental toughness with, and that, that's a language that we had growing up. You know, you've got to be tough at this, you're strong at that, and you're a bloke and, and be this way. So it's no fault of my father's or my grandfather or anyone growing up, but that's just the environment we were in. And if I were to go and approach them at any point where I started feeling that way, me sitting down going to my father, dad, I'm crying, and I don't know why. Um, but why am I feeling this way? I mean, that was the biggest fear that I could possibly uh, bring into my life. So, and again, I, I guess it was that fear of that um, uh, being ostracized perhaps by my family. And that story that I was telling myself again, which, which wasn't true, uh, is that they might out me. They might not think that I have what it takes um, because could you imagine if that had happened. I mean, I'm dealing with this mental health issue Imagine if I tell my family and then they kind of reject me. I mean, for me, that would have been just uh, a lot worse to deal with. So, yeah, it was just one of those things, mate. And trust me, I thought about it. I wanted to, uh, but I just couldn't, I couldn't get to that point. 
I just felt like I could do this myself and my family wouldn't have to worry about it. I can tell them about it in 15, 20 years time or something like that. So um, unfortunately it just didn't uh, work out that way. Wow, Jake, I'm blown away by that, mate. Thank you so much for painting that picture for us. Now, you've identified that there's an issue at this point after you've, you're on the way home after that moment where you had a bad football game. What were your first steps then after seeking help? So what did the football club put in line for you and, and how did you, you know, have the process of getting back to normality for lack, in inverted <laughs> commas, normality? That's all right, yeah, because it's, it's uh, I actually... I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story in terms of kind of how I talk about it is essentially uh, after I had that moment at home, I went and I uh, went to the football club. I sat down with a guy named Dr. Ben Baresi. He was our club doctor. And we, I spoke to him about what I'd been going through and uh, he diagnosed me, me with depression and gave me some antidepressants. And I remember as a young man at that time, I was 20 years of age uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't really understand it. And looking back now, I wish I had have asked, you know, 20, 30 questions about it. And one of the biggest things I encourage people again today is when you're being diagnosed to become curious about mental health and ask questions about it. If you're not confident about diagnosis, go see another doctor, get another opinion because uh, you're always entitled to that. And I remember sitting there and all I heard from Dr. Ben was, mate, pop this pill every day and you'll be fine. Um, and I thought, geez, this is great. I just pop this little pill every day. I can get on playing footy, play a hundred games. Everything's going to be fine. I'll be back to being happy. Uh, and off we go. And I walked out of that, that roommate thought it'd be the cure. And unfortunately it, it, it wasn't. Uh, and, but that was my own, um, you know, like my, my irresponsible behavior of not asking about it. You know, what is it? what's byproduct of um, medication, you know, all these things I should have asked and I didn't do it. And my, my illness, I guess, didn't go away quick enough. I was young, naive, ignorant, um, popping pills every day. They weren't happening. They weren't helping. And I just thought it was a lot of crap. I fell back into that old mindset again as a, a young footballer. And, you know, I've got plenty of regrets in my life and that's certainly one of them. And I look back now and I think, just any, um, any young bloke now going through the system, surely they're not that stupid to, <laughs> to act that way. And I hope that's the case because uh, there's far more better support in place. But I, um, I wish I had have got more help, mate. Again, off the back of that, I was lying to family and friends and the footy club and telling them I'm fine. Um, you know, I'm feeling better. When the, the reality is, is that I just didn't want to think about it. I just wanted to, to get on with my life and, and just, use these pills as an excuse to kind of get people off my back. Um, and that was just something that I really lacked a lot of care for. And my career came to an end and it wasn't on my terms, unfortunately. And uh, in that, I guess that identity crisis of leaving the game, um, I felt like I was hard done by. Uh, I lacked responsibility. Uh, you know, I pushed family away because I felt like I let the name down um, and I couldn't really hang out with family anymore. So Four years it was post my footy career. For the next four years, I spent all that time running away, uh, using alcohol as a way to suppress um, and just party and party quite hard, which led me down recreational drug use uh, and also prescription uh, drug use. And you know, that just led me to an addictive behavior of, of, uh, of running away. And unfortunately, that led me to a moment in my life where um, I'd party for four days straight. It's about four years to the day after my footy career. 
And uh, yeah, party for four days straight and then hadn't slept and then come home and I attempted to take my own life one morning uh, on a Monday morning and uh, and very fortunate to still be here. I physically committed to the act of suicide and as I was on my bathroom floor, my, my phone had rang and it was my father. He called me uh, because my mum had told him about an hour before to call your son because something's not right. Mum had just had a feeling uh, that yeah, females get an intuition and yeah, she told dad to call me and dad called me and, uh, and I picked up the phone and it's probably the one thing that saved my life. Um, and then, uh, my dad kept me on the phone and then mum and dad came in from the farm, picked me up in Port Melbourne where my apartment was, uh, took me back home and I, I don't remember any of being at home for the next three days. My mum tells me that I was just a zombie cause I was, would have been coming down, uh, from all these drugs and alcohol that I was on. And then um, the next day after that, so about third day, three days after, I went in and seen a lady by the name of Dr. Maddie Clements, who was an AFLPA psychologist at the time. And she, again, saved my life. Um, she put me into a, a clinic in Dandenong. I worked with a psychiatrist there named Dr. Brendan Murphy. Uh, he educated me um, about mental health, mental illness, depression, depression. Um, uh, addiction but not I wasn't an addict I was using to run away uh, from my issues so he taught me about I guess that behavioral replacement of using such things as drugs and alcohol to to make you feel better and essentially that was me running away from my mental health and once I learned about that it was actually quite easy for me to make that transition and the best thing that Brandon taught me was as a perhaps as an athlete and he sold this to me really well. He's basically like a coach and <laughs> he was very smart, clearly a psychiatrist, very smart. And he just said to me, he's like, mate, you've got the blueprint to make things happen really, really fast. Um, I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, mate, as an athlete, you've got commitment, you've got dedication, you know, hard work, you know, all these things. He said, we just got to get your focus in the right way. We've got to get you um, passionate about something. We're going to get you purposeful about something because when you're like that as athletes, um, shit happens pretty quickly uh, and you can make change quite dramatically. And once he taught me that, uh, it actually happened. Yeah. And I was fortunate. I spent about eight to 10 months with him in the clinic. Uh, and then when I come out the back end of that, working with him and other people around me, I um, that's when the ideas of outside the locker room uh, the charity that I run today started uh, coming to life. Jake, I've got goosebumps, mate. That whole story is so captivating. I, I can't believe that, you know, I'm a huge believer in everything happens for a reason. And, you know, there's pivotal moments in, in your life that change your way of thinking and, and you know, spark new things or, or close windows, open new windows. And um, I'm just blown away by that. So thank you so much for sharing with us, mate. You're welcome. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on before earlier in the podcast about, you know, toughness when you're in a football environment is backing back into a pack and going head over the footy and all those sorts of things. Mm. And, and I guess nowadays toughness, when you think about it in everyday life aspect, it's resilience and, and um, pivotal moments in your life and seeking support to get through those moments. I think that that's my definition of toughness anyway. Um, how has that sort of mindset enabled you to, start the charity outside of the locker room. And for the listeners at home, talk to us a little bit about that as well. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point and a really good one is around, I think, especially over the last like um, probably six, seven years and especially in the scholastic system, we're learning more about mental health and resilience. And I think uh, what that's doing in my excitement is that hopefully the next generation look coming through is going to be far more better equipped uh, to deal with things that I had gone through specifically. And because at high school, mate, we in health wasn't about um, you know, mental health illness is probably about, you know, how to bloody, oh, who even knows? I probably wasn't even listening anyway. But um, it was just one of those things back then in school, we didn't learn anything like that. So um, it's exciting to see that a lot of change is happening there. So therefore, it's, you know, going to have that positive impact later on, which again, um, creating toolkits for people to realize that you can't create a false reality that life is perfect in every way um, and positive psychology is really important, but you've also got to practice um, negative connotation to life and psychology because that's what builds you and prepares you for, for difficult moments. So one of the things I spoke about in the first lockdown with COVID to give you an example to answer your question about how it's prepared me for not just developing the charity, but just in life in general, there was a, a really uneasy uh, an, un, an uneasiness of people around the world especially here in Australia that uh, they lost a lot of routine and a lot of structure and they lost a lot of security um, once this COVID thing went into play you know borders are being closed flights are being shut businesses are being closed down the people were really frightened of that uh, where for me personally um, dramatic change and you know things happening you know, quickly and pivoting and all those type of things. Um, it's something that I've just become used to over many, many years. And uh, perhaps that's held me in good stead what I'd gone through. I like to think it has is that this change with COVID hasn't really impacted me emotionally much at all. Um, if I'm to be selfish, the only thing I don't like is working from home at the moment. I mean, that's really picking at it at all. I mean, I've learned to be by myself. I've learned to, um, to, love myself i've learned to acknowledge um that i'm i have value um and i've learned to not attach my identity anymore to what i do for work or you know my relationships that i have it's all that stuff that i've learned over the years that we have to have better resilience in ourselves um so this change is going on in the world at the moment it hasn't actually impacted me a lot and in fact i always uh, people that do do have challenges at the moment uh, i actually give them an example of saying, well, if I could bring it back to sport for a minute is that a lot of athletes I feel during this time would probably feel very similar to me, um, especially in the professional space, because footy is a brutal game. You, they, you're there one minute, you're not the next. And for us, it's kind of like, well, what are you complaining about? Like we, <laughs> I've been cut and lost my job overnight and all my income's gone and I have to find my feet and do it myself for the next two years. So it's kind of like a bit of a, a reassurance that perhaps people can take some compassion towards footballers specifically who leave the game uh, and, and battle uh, because again, you lose your career, you lose that structure, you lose that routine. Uh, you've got to find your feet again, as I said, um, and you've got to build yourself up. Um, so it's kind of a lot of footballers specifically probably thriving in this environment because a lot of them are kind of used to it as well. Football is, I think the average career now is 3.9 years. It's not what people think. It's, it's not the, 
the parade in a car around the MCG waving goodbye or the best and fairest speech as a retirement. It's very rare that that actually takes place. So there are a lot of small majority footballers and athletes in general that leave their sport uh, upset, bitter, burnt, um, and have to find their feet. And a lot of them don't prepare for that because they're trying so hard in a short period of time to make it work that they're not focused on what comes after it because they're concerned that if I focus on that, it takes my eyes off where I am right now. So the change for a lot of people, especially myself uh, now, isn't uh, such a big thing. But in terms of setting up, probably the, big, the best thing it's done for me in setting up the charity is just that, I guess it's that willingness that why not I own my story. Uh, I have a lot of um, assurity and courage around talking about my story. So I don't, it doesn't bother me if people question me because, you know, there's nothing to really to question anyway. Um, and the third thing is, uh, as well is it's just the relentlessness that I've learned through sport uh, and the work ethic through that just to, Nothing gets in the way, mate. And also, you know, I've, I've had heaps of money. I've had shitloads of money playing footy. I've had 180 grand in the account for a 19-year-old. It's a lot of money. And I've had 45 cents to my name. Um, so, I mean, really, I'm not motivated clearly by money because I run a charity. Um, but secondly, that there's no fear attached to it anymore. And a lot of people who, at the moment, are attaching a lot of their fear to the security of financial gain and um, that that doesn't impact me. So that really held me in good stead. And, and what I mean by that is that in the early years of starting a charity, especially um, there's no support, you know, you're doing it all by yourself. Uh, you've got to really love what you do. Cause if you don't, you know, you, normal people will just quit. I mean, who wouldn't you just go get a job and live a little bit more, um, be happier, I guess in, 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 in marks, but, for me, it was just, I've learned a lot of skills during that footy career, mate, that uh, has helped me. Said, and to be brutally honest, it's probably pissed a lot of people off <laughs> during the last few years in the industry uh, because I am quite, um, I do come forward in what I think and I don't say a lot all the time, but when I say things, uh, I generally tend to kind of challenge the status quo uh, on how things are done. But uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely, mate. And I think a few things pointed out, really highlighted for me in what you just said. It's, it's one is that you're so passionate in everything that you're doing. And I think that's what, you know, comes off that is vulnerability and people really thrive and attract to people being vulnerable. And I think that knowing that the impact that you're having or can potentially have on someone else's life just by being vulnerable is huge. Another thing that I took out of what you just said there, Jake, was the toolkit. And I guess that's something I spoke about with Hadley in, um, well, tomorrow I'm going to release that podcast, but we spoke about collating different experiences and, and different um, moments in your life and how you dealt with those situations and adapting them to your toolkit. And you mentioned before that this COVID situation has rocked a few people, but for you, you've been through um, some experiences and you've adapted your toolkit to be able to not experience some of their harsher effects that other people might. And I think that's a really inspiring thing for people that are struggling in this point of time that, you know, these are just experiences for your toolkit. And then when you're faced with this situation or something similar later in your life, you know, to look back and think, wow, you know, I've been through that, then there's no reason why I can't get through this as well. Yeah. And I think uh, if you would ask any of my staff, I think probably the greatest strength and skill that they say that I have is I bring a real reassurance and calmness to the most frantic of moments. Um, when everything hit in terms of COVID, there was 
even in myself, there was a level of uncertainty, um, especially in my staff. So they all were really scared and petrified that, you know, they're going to lose their security. And for me, the first thing that I had to do was get them all together and just reassure them uh, that, look, you know, we're going to make this work and it doesn't matter what we do and how we do it, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this and we'll, we'll do it all together. And a lot of the things that people, we, again, coming back to the human mind and what, how it creates stress and manic and anxiety is that we think and we overthink and we, we think what could be, what might be, but we actually don't take time to sit down and look at the facts and, what the first thing I did, uh, Matt, was I sat down and I looked at our financials uh, and I looked at, all right, well, where are we uh, and how do we sit? And you always look at the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario that I could look at still made sure that our team kept their careers and their jobs over the next 12 months. So for me, it was just taking an act of leadership in a, in a time that was really uncertain for many, but calling upon those skills that I've learned during my footy career and learned during my rehab if you call it that uh is that you know what it's okay just take a deep breath let's look at what fact and we'll sit down and we'll work through it if there's one thing i've learned in life mate is that everything works out for a reason um and i've challenged life many a times and it's always uh responded in a in a positive way for me and i've just always kind of taken that approach to many things now and there's nothing that in my life anyway that I haven't been able to work out, you know, whether that's financial or relationships or family or whatever it is, whatever the problem is. The first thing I do most mornings when I log on to my emails is what's that monkey on my back? You know, like what's the thing that I've th- thought about the most last night trying to sleep? I need to sort that out. What's, I need to make a phone call. I need to make emails. I need to get that monkey off my back right now. Um, in order for me to just relax and take a deep breath and, and move forward. So it is a, it is a, it's a tough time, mate, and for people that I guess haven't spent time on self-development and personal growth um, leading up to COVID, this is a really big learning curve for a lot of people. And the exciting thing about it, I think, conversations I'm having with everyone right now is uh, even you mentioned, Matt, at the very beginning before we started recording how I think you said – the first lockdown for you was, you know, was great. You got to take a bit of a break, a bit of a recharge, uh, whereas this one's obviously has its own um, complexities for, for various reasons. But I think people have kind of looked at this as an opportunity to take a break. Um, in our industry, being what we do in mental health of the charity, in that it's kind of, it's gone the other way. And you know, we've been busier than ever because we offer a welfare program, so welfare support platform for participants in sport and schools to, to get help so they can reach out. And as you can imagine, during this time, we've heavily promoted our welfare support program. And I think as a, as 29% uh, increase uh, across our, our resources, so which has stretched us as well in our capacity. Uh, we're now just about at capacity. I've just had to put on another full-timer in welfare to... Um, to take on another 40 hours a week uh, that we expect of growth over the next 12 months. So it's, um, it's an area mate that, uh, yeah, that people I think are learning on the go and this is just unforeseen circumstances that we find ourselves in. And it's just, I think the frust- added frustrating f- thing for me is uh, living in Victoria and seeing all my mates and friends around the country who seem to be living some kind of normality life that unfortunately we're just, uh, 
we're locked here. So I get more frustrated uh, at them than I do anything else. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the I'm in the same boat, mate. Seeing people work going out in bars in, in over in Perth and and we're stuck inside sipping cups of teas, recording podcasts like this, mate. <laughs> <laughs> It puts it into perspective, that's for sure. It's funny because even like I've, I consider myself to be very much an introverted person. I'm not, even though considering what I do, I do a lot of public speaking and that people assume because I talk so heavily about my story um, that I'm extroverted. I'm actually a balance of both, but probably more introvert. The first lockdown, I was fine. I was like, I could be by myself. No worries. I don't need anyone in my life at all. Um, but then... I've learned during this one, like I actually miss people. I actually miss being around, uh, just going to the pub, having a beer with my mate. I love my music and I love live music. I miss that so much, you know, and I realized just how important that is for me. And my best mate is in that industry. So there's a lot of things that I actually miss more than I actually thought that I wouldn't uh, at the start of all this, but you've just got to take it as something you'll never take for granted. Definitely, definitely. Human connection is so pivotal. And I think, you know, we took it for granted for so long. And now being without it, we're all craving that human connection. And I guess, from a glass half full perspective, once we get back after these, you know, six weeks, or we're coming towards the halfway point no we're only a week down sorry i'm getting a bit excited here um no. once we get past this period we're gonna appreciate those sorts of things more than ever which is such a great thing it is and i think if businesses can really hold on um and find a way to manage their their um their revenue over the next say two months i feel that in the industry especially for hospitality it's kind of basically dropped completely um, I really feel that at the back end of this, all those industries will thrive uh, because a lot of people will just want to get out and they'll be doing it more so than they ever have before. And um, I really hope friends of mine I know are really struggling in the hospitality industry and I really encourage everyone to really try and hang in there, you know, and obviously there's moving factors to make that work. But if they can do it, I think that come at the end of the this in a couple months time that you know it'll be very rewarding um and hopefully people like banks and uh, landlords and people like that are really supporting uh these businesses to do that yeah definitely jake and i guess just backtracking a little bit you mentioned before about how you know we as humans we naturally gravitate towards the worst case scenario without actually assessing the worst case scenario and we often think the worst and and it brought back a, a little video that i watched will smith was talking over and he was saying that as humans we naturally build up to that moment and we get scared about something that hasn't even happened yet. And he used skydiving as an example. And he's like, most people are scared of skydiving. And we, you know, we build up, we're driving there and we're so, so anxious about falling from the sky, but something that hasn't even happened yet that we're building up all this anxiety and all this fear. And then once you get to the top and, and you're faced with that front on and you jump, he's like, suddenly all the fear goes away. He's like, so if yeah. we adopted that mindset into everything that we do in our life, he's like, then, then it makes you question why are we getting scared over something that hasn't even happened? Well, that, that's it. I, I use a very similar, I've seen that video too. It's a great one. Um, I, I use the example of, you know, if you're leaving work in the afternoon, your boss says to you quickly before he walks out the door, I'll be in my office tomorrow at nine o'clock. So I want to have a quick chat to you. Uh, and he walks out or she walks out and in all night you're sitting there going, oh no, what have I done wrong? And you're looking about, you know, oh, I've done said something or maybe I'm going to get the sack or you think we always think the worst case. And then the next morning you walk in and you sit down with your boss and he gives you a pay rise, you know, like, 
it's just one of those things as human uh, behavior. We always assume uh, the worst and we fear um, what that might could bring to our lives. So just to really combat that, it's something as people, we've just got to understand it. It's just human behavior. Um, there's a book called The Chimp Paradox, uh, which my psychiatrist gave me. I've actually just started reading again. Uh, it's a, a mind management book. It's written by a sports psychologist and it actually teaches you all this stuff around. It's a, basically a crash course in human psychology. Uh, and he teaches you about the chimp in your mind, which is you know the, the fear and the uncertainty. And then this is your frontal lobe, which is your adult, which is all the, the factual part. And how it works in the way we take in the information where everything goes through first neurologically, it goes through the part of your brain where it does have that first fight or flight mode. So you can't, you can't get rid of that. You can't just create a new pathway to avoid it. We have to go through that part. Um, and unfortunately what comes next is our adult part, which is that reasoning part, which is that factual part. And a lot of time we don't allow ourselves to get to that point of our brain uh, to assess the factual information, to make better decisions, you know, i.e., you know, for example, when you're drinking and you're drunk and you're 78% chance likely to make the wrong decision already because it inhibits your ability uh, to think better and, and make better um, decisions. So therefore, your frontal lobe isn't playing at all, if, if, if at all. So the chimp part, the book actually teaches you how to squash it. You can't get rid of it, uh, but you can actually squash it and make it very quiet. And over the years, it's taken me a long time and I still fall back on it. I'm not perfect at it, uh, but I've certainly learned what's the difference between me telling myself a story that I'm making up compared to actually something that's critically uh, a problem and I need to fix it. Uh, but I can quickly jump from that, I need to fix this and it's, it scares me to that factual part is that, okay, let's assess, look, how do we fix it? Let's, let's move on uh, rather than spending time in that kind of chimp area where it becomes overwhelming. So again, it's a book called the chimp paradox and it teaches you how to, um, how to hear it and how to listen for it uh, and acknowledge it and know that, Hey, I hear, but you're bullshit, (laughs) you know, like that's actually not right. Uh, You need to give your frontal lobe, which is your adult, part of your brain to kick in and actually tell you what actually is. And another example is when, you know, a lot of young adults now who look online and look at social media, we compare ourselves so much to things online for a young person developing their brain and how they think about themselves. They're constantly saying they're not good enough. I don't look good in this. I don't have that. And of course they're going to believe that to be their reality. Uh, where in fact that it's not. Um, so a lot of that learning through a book like that is actually how to, hear it, acknowledge it, squash it, and look at what's real. Uh, and that helps anxiety, stress, 101 in my experience. Love it, Jake. Thanks for sharing that. And I'll have that the link to where you can purchase that book in the show notes for you guys at home. Now, Jake, coming to the end of the podcast, mate, I know prevention is something that I'm really passionate about in terms of all aspects of our life, whether that's pre- preventing chronic disease, preventing mental illness and, and building towards the best quality of life that you can have. And I know that's something that you do quite well within the outside the locker room. And I guess the question is, in terms of prevention, how can we start to change the conversation around mental illness with young men and women in a sporting environment? Yeah, it's a, another great question. It's something we focus on, you know, prominently in our, in our program. I think in order to change the conversation, you, ha- you have to start it. Uh, and where that starts is 
at some point somewhere in your sporting club or your community, someone needs to put their hand up and say enough's enough. Um, and what we find that within our sporting clubs, we could, a handful of people will actually acknowledge that us as a sporting club, we need to be doing more for education around mental health in our sporting club to act as responsible people in our community. So we have those proactive people who acknowledge that mental health is real and that's only probably most of the time off the back of themselves having experienced it or someone close to them in their family. So they know that their people in their sporting clubs aren't, you know, are possibly going through the, the same thing. And they're probably like one in seven people would be anyway in that, in that sporting club environment. So in order to, to change it, you got to start it. Uh, and, and that's where it does start. And then from there, it, it really is about putting the encouragement and giving the players and the families the tools on how to actually have that conversation. And we talk around things around first and foremost, how to identify. Um, so things to look out for in your mates at your, at your sporting club, um, whether their behavior is changing or the way they look or the way they talk uh, and really picking up on those, um, those things that come up. And then we talk about how to actually have a conversation and putting it into, uh, I guess, the stereotype as a, as a footballer, as a young male footballer in a, in a community rural footy club, for example, that's a really difficult thing to talk about um, because they're not ever being exposed to helping any of their mates talk about the way they feel. Um, so we try and we, the way we, we relate it to that, um, say, football club, for example, is using language such as there's a big difference between asking how are you, mate, compared to how are you? You know, and it's just a really simple thing. The Australian slang, yeah, how are you, mate? That type of thing. The guy goes, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, she's all right. It kind of encourages that kind of banter where if you sit your mate down and you actually just have a conversation with them and go, look, mate, how are you? You know, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about you. Uh, I've noticed this because I care about you. Uh, I, just, I just want to help. And it's really about teaching them how to, approach that conversation and getting them in the environments where that, that is safe to have. And it's only through education, Matt. Um, and that's how we're going to start encouraging young men uh, to have conversations. And I guess there's roles of people like myself and, um, you know, there's, oh, geez, there's 20, 30 athletes now that have publicly come out and talk about it. Uh, that ripple effect into the community, I think encourages many to uh, say, oh, you know, if, if he's had it, then, you know, he's talking about then I can I can go and talk about it but the success of our program is really driven by the, the leaders in our community club so those people again who put their hand up and say yeah I'm, I'm willing to help my mates and sit down and talk to them uh, about where they're at and what they get what's going on and um, sometimes our first session of our program that we run in sport a lot of the time that's that real kind of you know, that vehicle off the back of that, there's that, there's that momentum off the back of that session. Um, we always get a spike. Uh, every session we run, there's always a spike in our welfare uh, program because it's kind of a reminder, you know, oh, yeah, mental health, oh, I've been going through this. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling great. Or, geez, my mate's looking that way. Or I've noticed that in him. I'm, you know, now's the time I should talk to him. So it's about that con consistency of message and it's about that education message being really relevant to the sporting space to encourage that, that conversation. That's in my opinion. And, and that's what our program is showing us through all the data and the evidence that we collect uh, through it. 
Yeah, definitely, Jake. I couldn't agree with you more there, mate, especially as Australians. And, and one point that really highlighted for what you just said there was as Australians, we use how you going or how you going, mate, as a hello. And I guess changing your language really identifies that how you going is not a hello. Hello is hello and how you going is how you going. So really actually sit down and, and focus and ask and intuitively listen to how someone is going. And I think changing that conversation there is going to obviously spark further conversations, as you mentioned. Yeah, it, it does. And again, this is very new. I mean, and we're trying, what we're talking about here, Matthew, is we're talking about uh, changing an Australian culture that's been historically around for hundreds of years. Uh, we associate our slang to our war heroes, uh, you know, our vets and that returning where it is that real Anzac type of banter. Uh, and we don't want to discredit that. But what we're saying is, is that we, we want to be able to have these conversations in a new age way where we can keep our identity as Australians and have that fun and banter as we have but acknowledge that we can have these conversations with our mates as, as our Anzac could have and would have done at any point. Um, so it's really about just encouraging them to feel safe to have that conversation and just focusing even on something as little as your uh, language of, you know, the banter and how I are the slang. Um, you know, there could be a, a better way to do it. Not saying it doesn't work all the time, but cause it does. Um, but there are ways. In fact, I, I took that example there from Bob Murphy, who co uh, captain the Western Bulldogs. I do work with him, and he actually brought that to my attention. Him and I were speaking about it, and he was talking about how um, he noticed that the last, you know, three four years of his football career as a captain, he just noted he noticed a new age of male coming into the club uh, compared to when he started twenty years ago. Yeah, it was still very much my era with that toughness and hardness. But there are a lot. Of, there's a new age male coming into the AFL system that was very emotional, you know. That was very in tune with how they are and how they feel. Um, and him as a captain found that challenging at times because he wasn't sure how to have a conversation. And then he noticed that how are you, mate, compared to how are you, was actually a, just a really significant change uh, to encourage his teammates to trust him. Uh, in order for them to talk about the way they're feeling, so it was a really interesting little conversation we had, and uh, I, you know, I think it's a, a great example of what we could do. Yeah, I really love that point there, Jake. Thank you for shedding light on that. And I guess just to add a little bit of a disclaimer, the sporting club environment that we spoke about before, Jake, that can be adapted into every pillar of life. It's not just specifically in a sporting environment. I guess that's evident through everything that you're doing in with outside the locker room. It's not just in a sporting environment. It's, you know, challenges that we face in everyday society. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, mate, we're like this a lot of generic programs out there like, you know, Beyond Blue and uh, Movember focus on men's, or not just men's health, but just overall mental health and well-being. And uh, one thing that I, I know that as a program, we, we want to play that niche area in sport. And, and my, my uh, belief is that sport's a vehicle that brings people together, no matter your gender, no matter your religion, doesn't matter where you've grown up, everyone can associate with most sport, uh, sporting codes. And I think it's a vehicle that, again, you can educate a wide range of different people in one forum uh, compared to, you know, a generic approach to mental health and uh, education. So, and we'd be naive and ignorant, as you said, the community, we work in 90% of our 300 odd sporting clubs we work in uh, are community 
sporting clubs. And these are people that, uh, you know, that use sport as an outlet, uh, but they're just, their mum and dad's at home. They've got kids at home who are going through same challenges perhaps, and they work nine to five jobs. And a lot of them are volunteers and they play footy on the weekend for a bit of fun with the boys. So yeah, it, it certainly is more than, more than just a game, which is one of our slogans. And uh, it obviously impacts people in their everyday life, whether that's at work, um, at home life or on sporting field. The biggest challenge we're seeing now in Victoria with no sport being at all played this winter uh, is that a lot of blokes that I know, even me, um, I miss I miss footy. You know, I miss the boys. I miss hanging around them. And uh, I play in the Ballarat Football League. Um, you know, again, they're country lads and we have a lot of fun. Um, but I miss just being around them, the banter, the, the laughs, the joking. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of people now are really missing that here in Victoria and are very envious of of other states who can who can get back and play some sport this winter. So um, we're trying to play a really significant role at the moment for Victorian sporting clubs as much as we can uh, to support their their members and their players. Yeah, definitely, Jake. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, mate. I've um I've really been captivated by your story, and I appreciate you being so vulnerable and so honest during this show. It's hopefully inspired a few people out there, and I guess. That leads into my next question about what is your main mission and, and why do you get out of bed each and every day? Legacy, mate. Legacy. That's my, um, that's my driver. It's something that uh, outside the locker room for me uh, is, is that. Um, I always thought that playing AFL football would be my legacy and what I'd be known for, but it's obviously not going to be the case and that's something I'm very proud of and uh, for me, I want to be able to look back in 10 years' time when I'm, I won't be a part of the charity, someone else will be running it and, and doing probably bigger and better things than I am. And I'll always be the founder. And that's something that I'm extremely proud of. Um, and I want to be able to look back one day when I have children and a family and say, you know, that's something your dad did and what dad went through and what I went through as a young man at 20, 21 to 25, six years of age, it, was, it, was, it wasn't worth nothing. So... Um, for me, it's about leaving something behind that can, that can continue and that will continue to um, positively impact people's lives. To give an example, I got an email just before from a young girl who, who's now in, uh, she's now in university. Uh, and about three years ago, I went out to her school and spoke to her school about my story and we ran a program as a locker room there. And, you know, she just contacted me three years later and asked to interview me because I positively impacted her and her life and her friends lives uh, at that time to help actually her support one of her friends during a, a critical moment in her life. So there's little things like that, mate, that you get weekly that encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, no matter how hard running a non-for-profit is. Uh, it keeps you bouncing out of bed uh, as much as possible. Although Victoria winter is pretty bloody hard, but um, you know, as much as, uh, as much as you can. So it's more of a, a legacy piece now than probably at the start. I wasn't, I probably couldn't have answered that question five years ago. I was just willing to just get out there and run around, do what I had to do. But now it's really about, you know, making sure that it sticks around for a lot longer than, than me. And I think the brand now is coming, becoming bigger than me, uh, which is good. Um, bringing new stories, new people through it. I think it's really important. 
Yeah, definitely, Jake. And you're shedding light on such an important issue and, and changing the conversation. And I really, really love everything you're doing. You should be super, super proud, mate. And it's so fulfilling getting emails and messages like that to show that it is, you know, it, it is worth it and it is working. Jake, thank you so much for sharing your story with my listeners, mate. I'm, um, I'm really fulfilled by the opportunity. And I guess for people out there that really want to know more about your story and, and really resonated with things that you said, where can they contact you to find out some more information? Well, in terms of the charity, you can just jump on our social media or Facebook or Instagram, just type in outside the locker room and it'll be just under either that itself or OTLR and it'll come up. Uh, our website's otlr.org.au. You can jump on there and check it out. If you're involved in sporting club or school, Victoria or anywhere in Australia, um, you know, please reach out. Uh, our program, for example, in Western Australia, we're fully funded for 100 sporting clubs and 50 schools per year from the federal government for the next three years. So um, finances are, is supported in WA. So it's free. Queensland, it's up to uh, 30 clubs a year for the next three years. In uh, New South Wales, it's 40 clubs funded. But here in Victoria, we're working through that at the moment to be funded moving forward. So reach out through there. Otherwise, personally, the best place to get me is on Instagram. Um, that's generally where I think it's where you reached out, Matt, on there, wasn't it? Definitely, uh, mate, the power of social yeah, media. <laughs> that's it. So, uh, yeah, jump on there and I'm more than happy to, to be linked in. I'll have those details in the show notes for you guys. Jake, thank you again for your time, mate. I'll um, let you go have some dinner. Righty, mate. Thanks for the opportunity. Wow, friends, you made it. What an inspiring message that Jake is sharing with us all, and I'm so grateful I was able to showcase his journey and share that with the community this week on the podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, guys, if you're experiencing any challenges, please don't hesitate to reach out. I've got some resources in the show notes with some direct links. It's not weak to speak. Jake, thank you so much for being so vulnerable in this episode. I truly appreciate it. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the absolute world to me. Thanks again for tuning in this week, friends. I'll see you next time.